and welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this week's episode I am joined by Ian Dale. You probably know him from telly or the radio. Ian is a well-known commentator and author. He presents for Evening Slot on LBC and earlier this year he published a new book called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? Shout Less and Listen More. In an increasingly divided society, Ian examines why we've all become so disrespectful and intolerant. And in this episode, we cover how we can all emerge from tribalism and division and become more respectful to each other and those who govern us. As well, of course, as some essential fun insights and anecdotes. But before we crack on, I'm going to ask you if you like bees. And the reason I ask that is that a third of the British wild bees and pollinators are in decline. Yet pollinators are an essential component of the habitats and ecosystem that we and many animals rely on. And a friend of mine has started this amazing petition, calling for a nationwide network of pollinator passages to form a bee superhighway. How cool is that? Walla Idris's vision is to see pollinators everywhere, and we need to be proactive and creative in creating pollinator corridors where possible. Wouldn't it be amazing to see a nationwide movement, a concentrated effort by all of us to build a countrywide network of pollinators? And this petition aims to do just that. So if you are on your phone or computer right now, please check out the link in the description and just take a couple of minutes or less than a minute to sign it. And don't worry, this is the last thing I'll ask of you for the rest of this episode. You can just sit back and relax or continue your jog or whatever it is that you do whilst listening to your podcasts. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. Ian, thank you so much for coming on What Were You Thinking? There are many things I'd love to cover with you today, but in particular, I want to talk about the changing landscape of the media. Um, because when you started as a journalist, the media landscape was was radically different and has changed so much throughout the course of your career. And I just wondered what you think are the most consequential changes and not necessarily the obvious ones, but the ones with the sort of greatest consequence. Well, first of all, I think it's a fantastic title for a podcast because I think every day I find myself thinking, what was I thinking? <laughs> Uh, so, and it's usually something something to do with the media. Um, in terms of how the media landscape's changed, I mean, I'd, I've never actually described myself as a journalist. Um, and there are journalistic aspects to things that I do, obviously, but I'm not a trained journalist. Uh, I've never worked for a national newspaper. I've never worked as a traditional broadcast presenter. I mean, what I do at LBC... Um, I mean, it depends on what's going on. If there's a breaking news story, yes, I I, I revert to BBC type journalism, I suppose. Um, but I'm an opinion, opinionated commentator, which is rather different to your traditional journalist. Mm. But political commentary has massively changed over the last 20 years. I first, I suppose, when was the first time that I started doing commentary? It would have been the late 1990s when I was I was running Politico's bookstore in Westminster. And we would have TV crews and radio people come into the shop and ask to do uh, interviews. And then they said, oh, would you like to come on the programme and sort of talk about something to do with what was ever go- what was going on at the, at the time? News- Sky newspaper reviews I started doing. 
Um, and I, I sort of rather enjoyed it. But it was it's really the internet that's changed everything. And obviously, the internet existed in 1999. But you had very static websites where if you wanted to put an article on a website, you had to get a webby person to do it. It wasn't something that you could do yourself. And then in 2002, I started a blog. And I was one of the first people in Britain to do a political blog. And if you have first mover advantage, you you therefore inevitably get a bit of notoriety. So sort of Guido Fawkes, Tim Montgomery on Conservative Home uh, and me started around that time. And um, it was the first time that anybody had really, I suppose, I was going to say challenged the so-called mainstream media because blogging was very instantaneous. Uh, we, We weren't employed by anyone. We were just giving our own individual views. And the initial reaction of journalists was to ridicule bloggers, I suppose, as people who wanted to be journalists but had failed to become them, which I always thought was incredibly patronising. And I always thought, well, if I wanted to be a journalist, I I would be a journalist. But it wasn't something that um, I ever wanted to do. The thought of being a political journalist on a Sunday newspaper and having to ring up a politician at six o'clock on a Saturday evening and say, we found out about your affair. What have you got to say? I just thought, that's not me. I don't want to do that. Um, So blogs, I think, were the, the first meaningful breach of the mainstream media uh, dominance. Uh, and then, of course, social media. That has been the game changer, I think, where everybody can have a voice on social media. Now, that's a really good thing in some ways, but it's a very bad thing in others, where uh, you can have Mrs. Miggins putting forward her point of view, and it enables politicians, I think, to understand the public mood a little better. But you have some very evil people on social media who distort the conversation. Uh, And I think that has really been a game changer in our public discourse. It's been a game changer for politicians in how they uh, deal with uh, their constituents in in many ways. And um, so I think it it is all to do with the internet. I I had a feeling you would... um you would mention social media because, I mean, well, it's obvious that social media is just has such a huge, huge impact on on everything, but in particular sort of a political discourse. And as you have spoken about many times and as your um, your book, uh, your recent book talks about, social media has become so increasingly vicious and as you know, people like yourselves and many others receive torrents of abuse. Um Accepting that there are serious problems with social media, you know, some people might argue, well, the only way to actually deal with this is to unplug it completely. Or do you think the answer lies in a sort of sensible regulatory framework? Um, I think that it's very difficult to regulate the internet in any meaningful way. If you do try to regulate it, it's got to be done on a worldwide basis, because um, if it's just done in one country, how is that really going to work? Uh, because people can move their accounts, they can uh, move their websites. It's very difficult to regulate it. So I think you have to have some sort of international agreement. But I think in in the end, we have to regulate ourselves. And I will admit to being part of the problem in in the past, where um, I think I was far too aggressive in my tweeting and but it's a very human thing if you're under attack by somebody whether it's on social media or wherever your human instinct is to hit back and hit back harder and someone once said that uh, on the radio i'm nice 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 and on twitter i'm a beast 
And I had to, I had to admit that there was an element of truth in that. And I'm sure that the beast in me still emerges from time to time. But I have tried to calm things down on Twitter, particularly. And well, that's the point, isn't it? Because I know you. I think you've talked about this in the past. How and I think this is the opening quote in your book about how you know it's so easy to say things on on social media that you wouldn't dare yeah. say into somebody's face. Well, if someone calls you a twat on Twitter, your instant response is to call them an effing twat back. And <laughs> um, I mean, I don't really blame people for doing that. But I think there's so much uh, on Twitter of people de- almost deliberately misunderstanding someone's motives. And because you only have a limited amount of characters to respond, you, you can't get any sort of nuance on Twitter. You can't get into a complicated argument about about a- any really important issue because you are restricted. So in some ways, you do have to uh, limit yourself and you, you have to discipline yourself not to get into these spats. And what, what brought it home to me was half past midnight one night, I was in bed with my laptop on my pillow and I was having a, a, a Twitter spat with somebody with four followers. And I thought, what on earth are you doing? And it, it was all, all about Brexit, obviously. Um, and uh, it, in in the end... Twitter is a bit of an addiction and you have to try and wean yourself off the irresponsible side of Twitter and use it in a way that um, is maybe different from what you'd been doing in the past. And uh, I've tried to do that over the last couple of years. Yeah, no, I, I totally relate to that. Not, not. I mean, I must confess, I haven't yet found myself in a in a debate on uh, half, <laughs> half past midnight with an egg, <laughs> effectively. But um, exactly, yeah, I uh, I have uh, during lockdown one of my biggest most biggest um, habit changes has been to not take the, um, my phone into the bedroom because I also find myself just scrolling endlessly on Twitter. Um, or as some people say, the twat machine. But um, <laughs> so everyone loves a bit of optimism. And I think you it's fair to describe you as an optimist. What are the possible paths to a place where we can have civilised conversations and, and actually listen in good faith? Um, I, I think at the end of the book, I list 50 ways that we can improve public discourse, some of which are quite obvious, some of which may be not so obvious. But two of the things that I think are obvious, but we don't think about, is give ourselves more time, more time to react. Um, don't instantly uh, react with, with something aggressive. Uh, we, we need to calm down, we need to reflect a lot more in what we say, not just on the internet, but in, in general public discourse. And but that it's a bit like coronavirus, where everyone blames the government for everything, and there is blame to go around. But in the end, we all have to be responsible for our own actions. And if we breach the guidelines, if we do things that we know we shouldn't be doing, the, the virus increases in its effectiveness. And it's the same in our public discourse. If we do things which in the back of our minds we know are divisive and, and wrong and likely to lead to inflamed arguments, we only have ourselves to blame. Uh, and, and I recognise that nobody's perfect. We're all human beings. We all have human frailties and fallibilities. But at least if we all improve our discourse by 20%, that's something at least. Nobody's ever going to be perfect and um, involve themselves in 100% calm debate. That's not how things work. And we, we just have to recognise that. 
So as, you know, speaking as an optimist, I think both of us are fairly optimistic people. Do you think it has to get worse before it gets better or before, you know, before we wake up to the damage we are doing? Or do you think people are already starting to to make changes? Well, I'm not sure how it can get much worse. And I think this was exemplified by the Trump-Biden uh, debate, where I, mean, I watched that in absolute horror, thinking, could this be a worse example of public discourse? And then you contrast that with the way, and I didn't see the whole debate, but I've seen the half-hour highlights of the Pence-Harris debate, which is exactly, to my mind, how things should be conducted. Absolutely. So, I wondered whether that first debate was a bit of a trough. We'd actually reached the nadir and things can come back from that. Um, I don't know. And the thing is, Joe Biden, whatever you think of him and his qualities as a politician, he's he's not an aggressive man. He's a polite man. But even he descended into the gutter in that with some of his responses as well. And, and you thought, well, you're just making yourself as bad as Trump here. It was very easy for you to score a real hit in this debate, but you decided to hit back. And in a way, you can understand it. But he didn't have the self-discipline to do what was necessary on that night. And in a way, he was just reflective of people more generally, I suppose. So let's find out a little bit more about you, Ian, because I think you have a very interesting um, trajectory as you sort of Alita in your your first answer about your the way you became you know a broadcaster and and a commentator because you you started off you know very interested in politics and I believe you wanted to become a politician when you started off uh, and I can't remember who you stood against but I think you had some fierce competition was it Rory Stewart and someone else who did you stand against <laughs> well I I stood in North Norfolk in two thousand and five. Um, and then in 2010, well, in the 2005 Parliament, um, I, I'd lost against Norman Lamb very badly. Um, I turned a majority of a Lib Dem majority of 483 into a Lib Dem majority of 10,600, which was quite quite an achievement. Now, um, if you look at the raw facts of that, you think, "Oh my God, Ian Dale must have been the worst candidate ever." But I was warned when I got before I got selected by Chris Renard, who was then the head of the Lib Dem campaigns. He said, I really would advise you not to go to North, for North Norfolk because Norman Lamb will get a 10,000 majority. Now, I thought I knew better than him because I, I knew Norfolk quite well. To me, North Norfolk was a very conservative area with a small C. Um, but he turned out to be absolutely right. And in the 2010 election, that majority increased to more than 11,000. So that kind of told me, well, it wasn't me. <laughs> and I, yeah. look, any anyone who knew what kind of campaign I fought knew that I, I could not have done more to win. I moved here. I was really prominent in the media, ran lots of local campaigns. I had lots of people on the doorstep say, oh, we wish we could vote for both of you. But Norman Lamb is such a good constituency MP, which he was. And I was kind of fighting somebody who, for a Lib Dem, was quite Eurosceptic, uh, was a sort of ersatz conservative in many ways. And um, I just remember on the, I think it was in February before the election in, was it May or June? I can't remember now. Um, I think it was May. And I canvassed for an afternoon in a village called Overstrand, which is on the coast near Cromer. And it's quite a well-to-do area. Every door I knocked on, the message was the same. Well, we really like you, but Norman's such a nice man and a good MP. And I remember coming back and saying to my partner, that's it. There is no way this is going to happen. I kind of knew it already, I think, but it just crystallised it. And, But, of course, I then had three months 
including the election campaign, where I had to pretend to all the constituency workers that it was all going terribly well and we were going to win when I knew, when I knew we weren't. And it was a, an absolutely shattering result. So I, I then thought, well, I'm going to have one more go. Um, but then I started a, a new company, Total Politics and Bite Back Publishing, and I took two years out of selections. And uh, that would prove to be a fatal mistake in many ways, because by the time I got back into it, which wasn't until the autumn of 2009, most of the seats had gone. And I nearly got Bracknell, whereas I was up against Rory Stewart and Philip Lee. I think they lived to regret that choice. Um, <laughs> in fact, it's funny. I had so when when Philip Lee defected, I had so many people from Bracknell contact me via LBC. So will you will it will you come back? And I said, No, you had your, you had your chance. <laughs> uh, but when I and then I the last seat I applied for was East Surrey, which Sam Guimar got, and. Um, I it was a disaster. I got into the final six, and um, I, it was Natalie Elphick was one of the others. I can't remember who the others were. Oh, there's a local candidate, um, Sally Marks, I think it was. And I saw Therese Coffey the previous week, and she said, um, "Now they're expecting a future cabinet minister. They, you are going to write a speech, aren't you?" And normally I would go in and just do a speech. So I thought, oh, maybe I better. So I wrote a speech, and I thought I'd memorised it, but I have a, such a terrible memory, and I, I, I hadn't. Uh, within a couple of paragraphs, I'd gone way off, and I never recovered. Uh, and Sally Marks, the local candidate, and I don't blame her for this because I'd have probably done the same thing. She lined up um, an old boy at the front to ask a question about the result in North Norfolk. Well, after, the, and I mean, I gave as good an answer as I could, but frankly. Um, I could just tell that the whole thing was a disaster. And sure enough, I came six out of six. And that and that was the last one. And I decided that was it. And I wasn't going to flog a dead horse. And th- there is a sense in parliamentary selections where you have to be in the right place at the right time. And I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and, that, and that's it. I, I, I would have loved to have been an MP, but I don't lay awake at night thinking, what if? Uh, I... I the political virus never quite goes away, but um, at my age now, that that there is no way that I could ever stand again. I nearly did in I nearly tried in twenty seventeen when Saffron Walden came up as my home constituency, which Kemi Badenoch is now the MP for. Mm. And I think had I stood, I would have, would have stood a good chance there. But um, I had twenty four hours to decide what to do, and I in the end I wrote down a list of pros and cons, and I came up with four pros and fifteen cons, and that that was. <laughs> That was the decision made. Um, yeah, yeah. And in a sense, it, it was really down to, would I, did I really want to give up the best job that I've ever had, i.e. on LBC, for something that I knew would cause a lot of hassle for me uh, publicly? Um, I, I'd said to my partner previously that I thought if I had become an MP, we would have split up over it. And mm. I still think that. And I just thought, I'm, I'm not willing to... Re- I've got a nice life um, that... I earn a decent amount of money. Why would I put all that at risk? Well, and also on top of that, arguably you have, you know, you probably have more of an impact on public discourse and uh, the direction of, of a party and many other things that you might do, you know, if as a backbench MP anyway. So I think you are in a, uh, you know, I can see why the list of cons, considering your current position, would be quite long because um, you are in a great position right now. 
and you know you're you're such an influential voice in the Conservative Party. Yes, but but what does influence actually mean? Um, yes, if I if say a caller on LBC contacts me and they've got a real problem and I think, well, this is really unfair. Something should be done about it. Yes, I can pick up the phone to a minister even a cabinet minister. I can even text the prime minister if I want to. Um, Does that confer a lot of influence? Because in the end, you can only change things if you have the power to change things. And being a minister, I think, does mean that you have the chance to change things if you've got the right means of doing it now a lot of ministers feel that they're completely powerless actually (laughs) and they think they always think the 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 power lies at the next level above them and then they get to the next level and find out that it's actually the next level above them even then and even cabinet ministers with the way that number 10 now really controls everything when I I had a minister the other day say to me or um, in in a whatsapp message that they thought that they were in trouble because they hadn't got permission from number 10 to speak at an event which was completely relevant to their portfolio. And I said, you seriously have to get permission to speak at an event from number 10. You can't make that decision yourself. And in some ways, I think that ministers are to blame themselves for this in that, and I know if you're a junior minister trying to climb the greasy pole, you feel you have to uh, do what number 10 tell you. But we've reached a situation now where number 10 has got so much centralised power that it is really unhealthy for democracy. And you can see that in the way that they prevent ministers from going on the media, particular programmes, particular channels, even with friendly, well, supposedly friendly journalists and broadcasters, they, they still don't put them up. And you think, well, if they don't do that, who do they think is going to explain their policies for them? Because they haven't got a sort of storm troop of uh, people going out there on the media like David Cameron had. I mean, there was Tim Montgomery, there was me, there was loads of people who would go out and spread a conservative message on TV and radio programs. Who are those people now? I I don't know who they are. They aren't there. And so if politicians don't do it, um, the message goes by default. And the the public are the ones that lose out because they, they get an impression of what the government's trying to do. But they may have got the wrong impression, and if the government doesn't tell them what they're trying to do, well, they've got—that's their own fault. No, that is a very fair, fair question. Um, very fair question. So, bringing back to the, um, the sort of a golden thread for all these episodes, which is sort of finding out a bit more as to what's influenced your thinking and um, potentially politics as well. And um, one of the favourite questions is to see find out whether there's an individual or a person who you think has had a real impact in this area. So who would that be for you, Ian? Well, I'm not going to pick a politician because I, I'm not somebody who is um, an original thinker. Uh, if I had become an MP, I wouldn't be one of the policy wonk type people. I, I mean, Jesse Norman, for example, I think is a great example of somebody who is is driven by ideas, is driven by policy. Um, I would have been exactly the opposite. I, I would want other people to come up with all the policies and I would be going out there to market them. So um, I, I wasn't particularly influenced initially in my teenage years or even in my 20s by ideology. Uh, I I was actually really influenced by my grandmother, who was born in 1894. She was one of 11 children, born into a farming family. All my wider family are farmers. And 
she broke out of that and she in her i think early 20s went to london and worked for the post office and then she got a job when wembley stadium opened i think and she was a bit bit of a feminist i mean i wouldn't say a left wing feminist a sort of fairly conservative feminist and then she went back to Essex, where she was born and brought up, and got married to a much older man who had come down from Scotland in the early 1920s, as a lot of people did in those days, to get work. And um, she lived with us in my childhood. She died when I was 17, but she she lived with my parents, which, I mean, as you can imagine, she was my, my father's mother. Um and we all got on very well, but she was quite a tempestuous character, and so was I as a teenager. And we used to have the most terrible rows. Um, but I always felt that even if I was in the right, I should apologise to her. So I always, I always stuck a little note under her bedroom door late at night. <laughs> um, and she was she was quite political. And um, I've told this story before, so apologies if people have heard it before. But I, my, my, one of my earliest political memories is as a 12-year-old, the day that Margaret Thatcher was elected leader of the Conservative Party, and she was ill in bed. And I remember about, I think it must have been five or six o'clock, just running up the stairs to tell her this news. And she burst into tears, which I thought was a bit odd. Um, and it was because she told me later it was because she never thought that a woman could ever lead a political party which most of the country would have probably agreed with her and it, it clearly meant an awful lot to her and she she t- it was roughly at that time she I think she told me that you should never trust Labour because they always spend more than they can afford and Michael Foote was a communist <laughs> so she wasn't very balanced in her political views but she was the one I think that really drove my initial politics and it was really her and Margaret Thatcher because I was um, in 1978 after my O-levels uh, we did a school project on local politics and I had to interview the Liberal Mayor of Saffron Walden and I was quite impressed by her and eventually signed up to be a Liberal Party member at the age of 16 uh, much to my parents' horror, even though they were both they both voted Liberal in 1974. But my mother used to worship Jeremy Thorpe until his um, rather difficulties, shall we say. And um, But about six months after that, I remember hearing a speech by Margaret Thatcher at the, must have been at the Tory party conference. And bear in mind, this was at the time of the, just before the winter of discontent, but the country was going through terrible economic turmoil. Inflation had reached 27%. Unemployment was rising. There were huge numbers of strikes. I remember on a school exchange trip to Germany, I was embarrassed to be British because they just laughed at us. We were the sick man of Europe. And Margaret Thatcher came along and she diagnosed the problem and she had the solution. And I thought, well, I agree with every single word of that. So that was the moment I became a conservative. So two strong women, I suppose, influenced mm. me, um, my grandmother and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she lived to see Margaret Thatcher elected as prime minister, but died um, a few months afterwards. Gosh, well, that's, um, yeah, it's nice to hear two strong females. Uh, <laughs> that's brilliant. And um, what about a place? Um, a place that's influenced me. When I was at school, I didn't really excel at anything. I was quite good at most things, but I was not a grade A student at school. And um, 
I enjoyed history. I enjoyed geography. I hated any science. I was totally useless at any of the sciences. I got ungraded in my physics A-level. But the one thing that I did become good at was German. And and the reason was because I went on a school exchange in 1977 and then again in 1979. And I remember I, I was in my third year, which I, I don't know what that is in the, the years that they use now. Is it year 10? I don't know. Um, and I came back and having been one of the worst in the class, I became I, I topped the class in the end of year exams. And my teacher thought I'd cheated because I'd improved so much. And I hadn't cheated. And then I remember a couple of months after that, after the school holidays, I think it must have been at the start of the O-level course, he said to me in a class, he asked me a question which I had to reply to in German. And he said, why did you say it like that? Why did you put that word there and not there? And I just said, I don't know, thinking that was a really weak answer. And he said, well, that's brilliant because that's the fir- that's the sign that you're on the road to being fluent. Mm. And yeah. I just fell in love with German, with Germany. Um, I just thought it was the most fantastic country. I loved going there. And I decided that I wanted to be a German teacher. And uh, none of my family had ever been to university, but I had decided that I did not want to be a farmer, even though that was what was expected of me by everybody in my family. Um, my parents were brilliant because they must have been, frankly, quite disappointed that the eldest son was not going to take over the family farm. So I applied to various universities. I knew my limits. I did not apply to any of the top ones. And um, my first choice was the University of East Anglia, which in those days was dubbed the University of Easy Access. Um, but, but it did the course I wanted to do. And I'd always, my, my mother came from Norfolk. We used to spend a lot of time in Norfolk as kids going on day trips to Hunstanton or Wells. And I just thought I would really enjoy Norwich, which was absolutely true. It's three of the best years of my life still, even, even now. And it, it gave me an affinity with Norfolk, which I've never lost. Um, but it was really, I think Germany taught me a lot about things. It, I went there, I did a gap year after I did my A-levels and that wasn't the usual thing to do in those days. And I, so I, I was a year older than everyone else when I went to UEA, but it was the best thing I ever did. It, it turned me into an adult. I'd never really been away from home for any length of time and it was the most fantastic experience. When I look back now, there are so many things that I didn't take advantage of that I, I should have done. Um, I was quite a shy teenager in, in many ways. I still am. I, I know it sounds ridiculous when I speak to the general public for three hours a night on the radio, do speeches in front of hundreds of people. But I've always been quite a shy person, uh, really. And anybody that knows me knows that. Uh, the, this sort of slightly extrovert, brash individual that you see on Twitter or on Good Morning Britain or whatever is not. I, I'm not putting on an act, but deep down, I am quite shy. And But doing that gap year, and then I did another year uh, in the middle of my degree in Germany, that uh, if you're in a foreign country, there's no point in being a complete shrinking violet. You have to force yourself to do things. It's like if I'm going to a party conference event, a fringe meeting or something, or, or a reception, I literally stand in the doorway and almost have to take a deep breath before I go in the room because I don't. I don't find it natural to just walk up to a random stranger and start engaging them in conversation. I know you do that when you're campaigning on the doorstep, but that somehow 
that's kind of your political persona. And, and I used to love canvassing in many ways. But the, before each session started, I'd really have to sort of pull myself together and think, right, you are going to enjoy this. <laughs> Um, that is um, that is really interesting, especially considering how many of those things you you do. Well, it's like I mean, you probably find this if you you get up to make a speech and or you're you're going on stage in a theatre or something, and the few minutes before you do that are awful. You th- you just stand there thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? I could be at home watching Dallas and playing with the dogs or something. Um, but once once you get on your feet, it all goes away. And if you connect with the audience, there is no better feeling. And that's been the, the great sadness of the last few months in a way, where um, I was booked in to do 30 or 40 literary festivals to p- promote the book, which I was really looking forward to. And, of course, virtually all of them are gone. It's a couple yeah. that I'm still doing. Uh, I did one in Cheltenham last week where lovely theatre, half of the seats were cordoned off for social distancing but it was a great event and it proved that you can actually hold events safely Uh, but most of them have just gone by the wayside and it's just not the same doing things on zoom you've got no connection with an audience you can't really even see the people you've got your interviewer and you and it's you might as just well be having a chat with them and you're not really aware of all the other people watching so i long for the days where we can get back to relative normality yeah no absolutely um, same here, same here. And um, one of the things your book talks about as well is tribalism. And so I just wanted to sort of touch upon that, really. Society has always been tribal to, you know, to a large extent. But do you think it has become increasingly tribal recently? I think that uh, generally society has always been tribal. Uh, you, you can look at it in all sorts of areas. You look at it in sport. I'm a member of the West Ham United tribe. Um, I hate people who are Millwall supporters, <laughs> but that's kind of my football persona. I, mean, I don't really hate them, but there's always going to be angst between certain football clubs. You look at politics, um, you have the Conservative tribe, the Labour tribe, the Green tribe, the, the Brexit party tribe, and almost never the twain shall meet. I think politics is more tribal in this country than it is in others. I think people find it much more difficult to switch around here. Um, I think I've become far less tribal over the last 10 years, partly because of what I do. I I didn't renew my Tory party membership in 2010 because I just didn't think it was appropriate if I'm broadcasting. That doesn't mean to say that I can't have opinions, but it is quite a release not to feel that you have to toe any party line whatsoever. But even 10 years on, um, if I say something that is pro Boris Johnson or pro the Conservatives, immediately I get a flood of tweets or texts if I'm on the radio from people calling me a Tory party stooge. Oh, I'm so far up Boris Johnson's ass, you can't see my shoes. Now, in a, I don't hide my political background, but, but my politics have changed over the last 10 years. And although I would still self-describe as being on the right, I have voted for other parties, not in not in a general election, I have to say, but um, in other elections I have. Um, I think if I, I've actually counted, I voted for five different parties over the last 10 years. And I, wow. I had somebody on, on Twitter about a month ago um, tweet that I was a Tory party stooge. And rather than replying in an aggressive way, I just said, this is not true. Here are nine occasions over the last month where I have questioned or criticised Boris Johnson or government policy. So I listed these nine things. 
And um, he came back on a couple of things. And then the next day, he'd obviously reflected on it. And he DM'd me and he said, look, I really want to apologize because um, I've now looked into you a bit more and I now realize I was completely wrong. And we've now <laughs> developed this really sl- somewhat bizarre friendship. And we're sort of like, uh, have become quite good friends, even though we've never actually met. Uh, and so that was an occasion where if I had reacted under my old Twitter persona and done it in the beast way, I would have created an enemy for life. But I didn't do that. I did it much more in a much more nuanced way. And it's had a really positive outcome where I feel that I've made a new friend. And we, we can all do uh, with, with, with new friends. I've now forgotten what your question was. <laughs> um, just whether you know you, you say about tribal tribalism, tribalism, whether, yeah. whether it has increased. Well, um, I, I think that the Brexit referendum was something which, uh, I mean, people tend to think nowadays that they are so convinced of their own rectitude that they cannot bring themselves to accept that somebody else not only is entitled to another opinion, but is entitled to put it forward. And I've always taken the view that if you don't accept that somebody does have a right to hold a different opinion from you, how can you actually ever marshal your own arguments against them? If you don't understand their arguments, how can you make sure that you're putting forward the best arguments? So, for example, on Brexit, I I was never somebody who would call someone a Ramona. I would fundamentally disagree, but I wasn't somebody again and this is the narrative has grown up is that i've been one of the main campaigners for brexit over the years not true i didn't decide to vote for brexit until uh, february 2016 after david cameron's um lack of big renegotiation with with the eu that was the point where i thought this organization can never change and we're, we're going to be better off out of it now I used to do speeches for the European movement in the in the 1980s, um, and and most of the people I talked to on the Brexit side, Steve Baker, I did an interview with him for my All Talk podcast uh, last week, and he was the same. He just had a, I mean, his his moment of truth was a lot earlier than mine, but he didn't grow up thinking we have to be out of the EU at all costs. And, and yet the, the narrative has grown up that that's what most Brexiteers have always thought. And, and similarly on the Remain side, that I think a lot of Brexiteers think that anyone who voted Remain was a traitor to this country because they wanted to let Brussels rule us. Well, most Remainers are as patriotic as Brexiteers. They just think of it in a different way. And I've in my whole adult life, I've never come across a political issue that was as divisive as that. And I, w- I was actually really surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been um, after what happened in the Scottish referendum. And if you think about the horrible nature of, of that, and, and God knows what it would be like if there's another one. Um, and, and this is where tribalism really, I, I think, is a, is a very bad thing. Uh, people's it's a very natural thing for people to circle the wagons if your if your tribe is in trouble but there is blind loyalty as well and blind loyalty never ever produces anything positive in the in the in the long term yeah that's that's perfectly to my next question actually because one of the things i wanted to ask you is you know quite a lot of people i think um it's fair to say are some you know, often a bit um, disappointed in how little um, politicians give credit to the opposite party. You know, mm. when it's when it's you know um, 
when it's fair to do so you know if if there's always a it often seems you know they're they're opposing it just for the sake of opposing it and um i just wondered whether you think you know at what point politicians have to put tribalism or, or party loyalties as you sort of described loyalties just now aside if ever well i don't think that you can ever put party loyalty to one side i think there are times when you have to break party loyalty but they should be few and far between they, they've got to be on issues of conscience things that you really strongly disagree with um, but you, most politicians are elected because they have the party label attached to them. They might like to think that they're elected because they are who they are. But we saw in the last election when some of the ex-conservative Remainers fought, stood as independents and none of them got elected. Mm. Now, one or two of them actually got surprisingly good results. Um, David Gork, um, I think, being one. But you look at Anne Milton's result in Guildford, and I mean that that was uh, must have been pretty shattering for her. And I, I was I mean, she was a very very good MP, and I really wish she was in the Commons still. Um, but she got a very small, I think seven percent of the vote, if I'm if I'm right. Um, but we can all think of issues, uh, and that's why if I think had I become an MP, what kind of MP would I have been? Um, I think I would have enjoy the constituency side? Would I have enjoyed the Westminster side? Could I have coped with all of the compromises that you have to make in terms of party loyalty? I, I could have become a male version of Nadine Doris. And I, I say that with love because she's a friend of mine, but she was in her early years as an MP. She was very outspoken on a lot of issues and was not a team player. Now, she's a Minister of State now, one step away from the Cabinet. So it, it goes to show you can be a bit maverick and still make it. Um, but I think I, w- I would have found that quite a struggle to um, to maintain the, the degree of party loyalty that you have to, generally, to climb the greasy pole. Uh, and I was never obsessed with, certainly when I stood for Parliament, being a Minister meant nothing to me. Nowadays, I've changed my view. If, if I had done it I, I would have wanted to be a minister and I would have wanted to be secretary of state for transport bizarrely mm, interesting <laughs> <laughs> well it's one and of those jobs where you can get things done you can actually change things where if you whereas if you're sort of I don't know the DCMS we can make speeches you can have influence at the margins but I, I'm not sure it's a job where you can actually really change the political weather mm. And what do we need to do to get over the more dysfunctional elements of tribalism? Or, you know, what can we do? And I think in particular, actually, I think more and probably rather than between politicians, I think more in sort of society. So, I mean, just anecdotally, one of my friends who was like on Hinge or whatever, she sees all these profiles and it says specifically, don't want to date a Tory or like, mm. don't don't get involved if you're, 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 you're a conservative and all that, which is, you know, uh, and she is a conservative, so um, uh, you know she might like the look of him on a picture or the rest of her profile. But she's like, well, clearly I have <laughs> no chance in hell for me. <laughs> and that—that that is, I think, what I think about of sort of the dysfunctional elements of tribalism. Well, you're right. I th- I think that's absolutely horrific. And one of the stats I quote in the book is that there was a poll that YouGov did that showed that 37% of Remainers would not want their son or daughter to marry a Brexiteer. Yeah. Now, the other, the opposite figure was 11%, so make of that what you will. But I was yeah. really, really horrified by that because I just don't see, okay, I don't think I could probably marry a communist, 
but I mean, human interaction is 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 about so much more than politics. And I, I've never understood this idea that you can't have friends across the aisle. When Laura Pidcock said that she could not have a Tory as a friend, um, or she couldn't work with Tories, I thought, well, you're going to be a pretty bad MP then, because most most backbench initiatives, uh, if they come into law, you have to create a coalition of interests. And that includes people from rival parties. You, you look at what Lynn Featherstone did as a when she on her first day as a minister, she decided that equal marriage was going to be her goal, and she's living proof that as a junior minister you can affect change. But how did she do that? Well, she created a coalition for for changing the law, and it was yeah. across parties, and she did it brilliantly. Now she had to have the prime minister's support to do it, which I mean credits to David Cameron. I think he still regards that as one of his biggest achievements, and rightly so. Um, but if you're doing it from the back benches, you have to get people from other parties involved. And uh, the fact that Laura Pidcock is no longer an MP, um, I actually think in some ways, although I, I quite liked interviewing her because she was always a character and would always say things um, that, that weren't you weren't expecting, um, in a way she got her just desserts because um, I don't think we want people in Parliament who are just so tribal that they can't see good in anyone else. Mm. And just bringing it back to the Conservative Party, I mean, which of the last few incarnations of the Tory party do you feel um, or, you know, felt most at home home with? Probably David Cameron, actually, um, even though I, I would still describe myself as a Thatcherite. I, I've become, I think, I think my hard edges have been rubbed away, if you like. Um, I've become much more socially liberal in the last 10 years. And it is doing the job on LBC that has really brought that about. I know a lot of people I see on Twitter, people describe me as woke. And um, I'm, I'm a Labour shill now, apparently. I mean, who knew? Um, but I have become, uh, if you want to put it in right left terms, I'm still as dry as dust, very right wing on economic policy. But I have become wet as a lettuce on, on some social issues. On immigration, for instance, I, I just don't understand the mentality that thinks that this country is better off without immigrants. I, I just don't get it, I, either from a society point of view or from an economic point of view. And, and you can prove it in so many different ways. And um, the fact that we have the levels of immigration we have now are due to the fact that we actually need these levels of immigration for our economy to function. If we didn't, we wouldn't have so many people coming, unless, of course, you subscribe to the view that they're all benefit scroungers, which, of course, they're not. Of course, there are some people that come here to do that, but very, very few. Um, so I, I think... I mean, inevitably, over time, your politics change because circumstances change. Margaret Thatcher was absolutely the right prime minister for the time that she was in office. Um, I'd quite like her to be running the coronavirus crisis now because I think she'd be doing a much better job than the current incumbent. Um, but all politicians have their plus points and their negative points. But I suppose David Cameron's kind of conservatism probably appealed to me more than, if I'm honest, Theresa May's or Boris Johnson's. Um, and though I was chief of staff to David Davis during the leadership campaign, that was mainly because he was my best friend in politics. But if he hadn't been standing, I would have signed up for David Cameron like a shot. I didn't know that about you and David Davis. Um, did, did you not? I thought no. that was. I thought everyone did. 
Well, I, I, I mean, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. He he was first elected in 1987, and I was running a. I was a lobbyist for the ports industry, trying to, trying to get rid of the dock labour scheme. And he rang me up one day. We'd never met, and he said, "I think you're getting this campaign wrong. This is what I think you need to be doing." And I thought, Do you know what? He's right. And so we met up. He wrote a think tank pamphlet for the CPS on the whole thing. And he effectively nudged out a couple of the MPs that were running the campaign. Um, and I just thought, you, you could go all the way. And we, we became quite good friends. And um, so over the years, I sort of followed what he did. And when he stood for the leadership in 2001, I wasn't a main part of his campaign team. But um, and when he became party chairman, Andrean Duncan Smith, uh, I thought he was treated appallingly. And uh, I then, after losing North Norfolk, I remember on the day that I drove out of Norfolk, he rang up and he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I jokingly said, well, I'll come and work for you. And Tracy Crouch had been his chief of staff at the time and she was leaving. And he said, how much would you want? So I, I gave him the salary figure that I would need to have. And a couple of days later, he said, right, I've raised the money. When do you want to start? <laughs> And I have to say, it ended up being the six months of agony because I was like a square peg in a round hole. I didn't really, if I'm honest, understand the role of chief of staff. If I had done, things might have turned out a little bit differently. But because I didn't have the letters MP after my name, some of the people around him did not really see me as their equal. And if I had put my foot down on one or two things right from the beginning of that, um, I, I'm not saying there would have been a different outcome, but I, I, it was a very unhappy six months. And it wasn't his fault at all. It was it was, it was mainly my fault, I think. Um, I noticed you refer, you know, you, you mentioned the impact that being on LBC for the last, mm. um, you know, number of years has had on you and also... Uh, potentially you know as as you say a shift on your politics and I wondered whether that comes back to actually what your book is all about is about you know you say shout less listen more you obviously get to listen to so many different perspectives and voices is that you think what has impacted um, the change? Yes um when I went to LBC, it never really occurred to me the, the breadth of subjects that I would cover. Uh, my, expert, my expertise was in core politics. But I, on my first, I think the first ever programme I did was about Channel 4 winning a case to be able to um, show adverts for an abortion clinic. And so I did a phone-in on it. Were Channel 4, was it right that they should be showing these adverts? Now, at that point, abortion was an issue that was way outside my comfort zone. And I remember as, as, I, as we went through the hour, instead of people phoning in to answer that question, I had a succession of women phoning in telling me about their abortions. Now, um, I can't remember what I said or how I reacted, but I remember saying to the guy that ran LBC at the time afterwards, I said, well, did I get that, the tone right in that? And he said, well, why do you think you've got all of those women phoning you, giving you intensely personal stories? And two of them had actually said they'd never told anyone about this, yet they were phoning me on the national radio station to, to tell me. And um, he said, it's because you've got a soft, unthreatening voice, you don't interrupt, and you listen. Yeah. And I've kind of used that 
to I love doing phone-ins on difficult social issues and it's funny we, we did a phone-in last night on how what would you retrain as if you lost your job through COVID what would you retrain as and I said I would retrain as a counsellor because I've worked out that even the most difficult calls I can cope with I can cope with people ringing me up and telling me that they're about to commit to take their own lives later that night um, and I've had that happen on several occasions and actually in my personal life as well I've had to effectively talk a couple of people down from doing it um, and I've been hosting a mental health hour throughout the coronavirus crisis and we have a professional counsellor on Emma Kenny but I find myself doing the counselling as well even though I'm absolutely not qualified to do so but it's funny she tweeted this morning that I could just do this hour on my own without her and that as I say has rubbed some of the harder edges off and particularly on things like universal credit the bedroom tax where I can I can argue the theory quite well for the bedroom tax but when you look at it in practice it's been appalling universal credit again the theory is great but the implementation of it for many people has been disastrous and when you get three middle-aged men phoning you one after the other and each of them cries you kind of realize that there's something wrong with the system so um, it doesn't mean that I've become all sort of left-wing and liberal. It just means that I think I've become a much more empathetic person than I probably was 10 years ago. Yeah, I can I can totally believe that because um, that is certainly something that I, you know, I would describe you along those, those lines as well. And actually, one of the things that I find really interesting about you and, um, you know, very impressive is how I think pretty much every wing of the Conservative Party likes you you know you're well liked and that's um i imagine that is probably for for very similar similar reasons well that's a and, revelation <laughs> is it yes. is that is am i am i mistaken well, just- i'm not sure i've ever thought about it in in those terms i mean I, I think everyone likes to be liked i think too many people go out of their way to be liked sometimes um uh, but look if if you have a platform like mine you you absolutely recognize that you can't be you you can't please everybody at the same time there will always be people who disagree with you there will always be people who intensely dislike you and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change their minds um most of the time i mean i gave that example a moment ago somebody i'm not sure whether he just intensely disliked me or whether it was just because he thought i was a, a tory party stooge um but generally if people take a dislike to you there's very little that you can ever say to to win them round. having said that i've just thought of a, an instance when i was a candidate when i was um, elected and it, it was in the newspapers that i was gay bear in mind this is 2003 and I, I I'd actually told the selection committee I was gay before I got selected which I don't think anybody had ever done before and this guy wrote the most terrible letter to the local party office uh resigning his membership that it was outrageous that they should have selected selected a deviant like me um three months later I was at a branch Christmas function in Munsley on the North Norfolk coast and a man came up to me and grabbed my arm really tightly, actually. And he said, I, I need to talk to you. I've got something I want to say. I said, okay. He said, um, and I'd, I'd forgotten about this letter by this stage, but he, he, he started saying, well, I, I wrote a letter when you were selected 
um, and it was a pretty horrible letter. And sort of the penny started to drop that this was the guy. And he he said, I just want to say, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I think you're an outstanding candidate. You've proved yourself. And I just wanted to say I was wrong. And I thought, mm. well, that must have taken a hell of a thing, lot of courage to do, bearing in mind the things that he had said in that letter. And I thought, well, credit to him for that. So there are there are times you you can win people around. Um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm not going to deny that I'd I'd rather be liked than disliked. Who wouldn't? Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> and um, I mean, you have interviewed so so many politicians, including um, cabinet ministers and obviously Boris Johnson, and a you know a whole range of of um, of politicians and ministers. What insights has have you know, what insights have these interviews and conversations given you about politics and politicians and Westminster? Well, one of the things that I found most difficult when I first started doing the job was interviewing people that I knew, people who were personal friends. It took me some time to um, get over the fact that they were friends. And Brandon Lewis, who is one of my closest political friends, um, he says that the interviews he does with me are the most difficult of any he ever does. I, I think he probably thinks I overcompensate because I, I, I don't want people to ever think that because I know somebody, I give them a much easier ride than anybody else. Mm. My problem is that because I have got quite a soft, unthreatening voice, and I don't, I'm not gratuitously rude to people I interview, even if I do dislike them. Um, and I want to have a conversation with them rather than a forensic interview. Therefore, some people think I'm quite a soft interviewer. My my argument is that if you have a conversation and people are acting naturally, and it's a more of a long-form interview than the usual sort of three or four minutes on the Today programme, you get much more out of someone. The listener gets much more out of someone. And I think this is where podcasts are fantastic in that there will be people listening to this podcast now who, for whatever reason, have built up an impression of me over the years, which I suspect that after what we've been doing now, an hour and 10 minutes, after the end of this interview, I suspect one or two people think, oh, I didn't think that about him. Oh, I didn't know that. Or um, he's he's a bit different to what I thought he was. And that happens so often in long-form interviews. I did one with Andrea Ledson the other day on my All Talk podcast. I think it was like 78 Minutes. And I had so many people contact me, either by Twitter or email, saying, well, I saw a side of her that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, uh, and, and that, I think, is what I can bring to the party in that I don't have to, okay, my news hour, I can't do long interviews. But generally, I've got Tom Bauer on, on Monday talking about his book on Boris Johnson for an hour. Well, I'm sure most of the other interviews he does, they'll be five to 10 minutes long at most. And he'll say the same thing in most interviews because you do. I mean, I know myself. Um, And and you always try and think of something more original to say in longer ones. But after five or 10 minutes, politicians have run out of the sound bites that they're briefed. When you were working for Penny Morden, I mean, you would, before she did an interview, you will have no doubt said to her, right, these are the two points you need to make in this interview. And so she would make those two points, regardless of what she was asked, generally. I mean, that's ha- that's kind of how the game works. But after a few minutes, you politicians get out of that comfort zone, in a way, and have to say something rather more difficult, or more, sorry, more different. And I think that is a really healthy thing. 
But I accept that there are there are some programs with formats that don't allow that to happen. I I totally agree, and that is that is one of the reasons why I love doing this. And uh, you know, I think as you say, I'm a, I'm a big big. Um, fan of podcasts and what it what it adds to to the debate. Another thing I just wanted to uh, hear about really is during the Conservative Party leadership election, you um, chaired or moderated a large number, if not all, of the um, hustings. I did ten of ten of the sixteen. Ten of the sixteen. There you go. They they wanted me to do all of them. Um, but it was just impossible. I, I couldn't say to LBC, well, I, I'm not going to do my show tonight because I'm going to do this. So I did all of the ones that were on Thursdays, Fridays or Saturdays. Um, and uh, uh, Hannah Vaughan-Jones did the others. Yeah. So that is that is a high percentage. And I remember having a conversation with you at the time uh, where, you know, you sort of talked about you know what you just did sort of showing how frequent they were they were and I think sometimes multiple on one day and um, anyway you were obviously very you know had a unique uh, line of sight into into both candidates and I just wondered and also you must have witnessed some wacky things I did. <laughs> and I mean <laughs> I'd love for you to, to share some of them but you know tell me a bit more about that well um Brandon Lewis's spad, Zoe Thorogood, first approached me to do this. Um, and she said they were looking for somebody, a broadcaster, to interview the candidates. And I said, well, okay, well, what, what are, are you laying down any conditions? And they said, no, you kind of do what you think is right. And they knew, they knew my background in the party. They, they knew that I knew both of the candidates. I hadn't declared for either of the candidates. Um, and... It was actually a really, really positive experience. I think for the party, it was a really positive experience. I actually think for both the candidates, it was. Um, I found it an incredible experience, actually, and I'm really proud to have done it. Um, But, of course, the first one um, (laughs) in Birmingham, that will forever be remembered as the day after The Guardian had printed their story about Boris and Carrie and about their their domestic uh, tiff. And I remember traveling up to Birmingham with uh, Brandon and Zoe. And I said to them, I said, you do realize I'm going to have to ask about this. And they said, you do exactly what you need to do. And so there there was never any attempt by anybody um, in the central office team to try and influence me. And they were so careful to try and treat both candidates uh, fairly. And I, I, it was very difficult because every other conservative politician had come out for one or the one or other of the candidates, and of course Brandon, as party chairman, could not do that and did not do that. And I still, to this day, don't know which of them he voted for. Um, so we got to the venue, and Boris and his team arrived. They were going on first, and um, I remember going into the some horrible little pokey conference room that they, they'd got for their team. And uh, Lee Kane walked in and Mark Fulbrook was there. Um, and I had a little chat with Lee Kane about it all. And I said, look, you do know I'm going to have to talk about this. Um, and then Boris came over. And I'd, I'd known Boris for quite a long time. I mean, we'd never been close friends, but I'd interviewed him quite often. He's a really tricky customer to interview, actually, because he never looks you in the eye. And it's very difficult to interrupt him. If, if, you're not, if he doesn't look you in the eye and he's looking all around the room but in your eye, it's quite difficult to interrupt him. 
Um, but he's, it, and he's a, a real challenge to interview. And he just sort of said in his, his in his typical way, uh, you're, you're not going to um, do all this newspaper stuff, are you? And I said, well, I've got to. I, you, you know that I've got to ask you about it. And I just assumed at that point that they would get together and Lee would basically say to him, well, look, if you cover it in your speech, because they had seven minutes to speak at the beginning, if you cover it in your speech, that's going to make it very difficult for him to really ask much about it. So much to my astonishment, Boris never mentioned it in his speech. So he sat down and I asked him, I can't remember how I worded it, but I I didn't do it in a salacious way. I just well, of course... We've seen the newspapers this morning, um, Boris. I think everyone uh, would like to understand what's happened or something along those lines. And he started going on about red buses. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. You've got to actually show some semblance of willingness to answer the question. So I tried again. And again, he he said, well, I think what people want to know is what I'm going to do for the country. And I said, well, yes, they do. But I think when the police are involved, I think people do have a right to know your side of the story. And I think that was the third question. And at that point, the audience started booing. And it was a, I thought it, they were all booing me initially, but I later found out from people in the audience that there were quite a few people in the audience booing him for not answering the question. Now, my initial reaction to the booing, which I'd, I had kind of thought might happen, my initial reaction was to burst out laughing. <laughs> I didn't, which I think is probably the right thing to do. But after five attempts, I thought, well, there's no point in going on with this because he's clearly not going to give any answer at all. And I don't need to rub that point home. Everyone listening can work it out for themselves. And at that point, I hadn't realised that the whole thing was being broadcast on Sky and the BBC. Right. And... Um, I kind of knew, I suppose, that it'd be, it had been quite a moment. And there was part of me, I mean, just as a sort of selfish, self-interested part of me, that, that, that knew I had to go down that road, because if I hadn't, I would have, I mean, my, my journalistic credibility uh, would have been shot to pieces, and rightly mm. so. Um, and I didn't switch on my phone until probably an hour or two after the, the whole thing had finished. And I really felt sorry for Jeremy Hunt, actually, because he came on and it really was after the Lord Mayor's show and uh, quite a few of the audience walked out, um, which was a bit embarrassing. Um, so that was the first one. And there were, I mean, it, the one thing that I was slightly disappointed with was both of them gave the same seven-minute speech at virtually every hustings. They, they, they would put a little bit of local things in. It, wasn't, it really wasn't until the last one at the Excel Centre where there were 4,000 people there. It was amazing. Where they, they did mix it up a bit. And Jeremy Hunt really came out fighting in that one. But it was kind of too late by then. Everybody knew it. But the, the, the thing that I was most pleased with was the questions from the audience. Because originally, the plan was that they would all submit questions in advance and um, via some sort of website that CCHQ had set up. And then they they would give me the questions and I would select which ones to put forward. Now, they didn't have any influence over what I chose. But in the first couple of hustings, they were sort of much of a muchness. And I thought, I'm not sure this is really where we need to go. And anyway, the question system broke down, I think, in the third one. 
So I just said, okay, well, let's do them all spontaneously. And you could, I could tell there was a slight sharp intake of breath. And I said, don't worry. It's my, if, if somebody's an idiot or nasty, that's, that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to control that. So sort of have no fear thinking to myself, shit, what have I got myself into here? Um, but, and, and then from then on, we did a mixture of pre-submitted and live ones. And nobody let us down. There were some absolutely fantastic people from the audience. Many, a lot of young people. At the Excel the Centre, of the 4,000 people, I reckon a third of them were from ethnic minorities. I reckon there were, there were a huge proportion of younger people. And I remember in Manchester, a guy stood up. Well, it was actually a pre-submitted question. He says, I'm 16 years old. I have uh, chronic depression and many other mental health problems. What are you going to do for me? And he got up to ask the question, and he hesitated a bit. And I heard someone shout, get on with it. And I thought, you utter idiot. And um, he asked the question. And actually, you could tell there was a, a frisson in the audience of people thinking, well, well done you. And a 16-year-old, what that takes some balls to do, particularly that kind of question. And I looked at Boris and of course, I always think to myself, I don't know whether you do this, when you watch Question Time or listen to any questions, you think, well, how would I answer that question? And I looked at him and I thought, mate, I feel for you. <laughs> and Boris <laughs> gave the most brilliant answer. And it was as if he was just talking to this young lad and, and the whole of the rest of the audience had disappeared. And that really impressed me because some of his answers to some of the questions had, shall we, be, shall we say, been slightly airy fairy um jeremy hunt was much more direct and would really engage um boris if he didn't if he wasn't confident in being able to give an answer to the question he would revert to boris type and bluster a bit and the audience of course loved it um there was another one in nottingham another young british asian guy got up and said um Mr. Johnson, your comments about pickaninnies and, let and letterboxes, say Muslim women look like letterboxes. Mr. Johnson, you're a racist, aren't you? And again, the audience sort of went, oh, my God. And Boris, Boris what, likes to be liked. He cannot understand anybody who doesn't like him. And he looked at me in absolute terror and... I can't remember what his answer was, but that that was again quite a moment, and it's it, it really brought home to me that the the party wanted to test the candidates. They weren't there to ask. Well, Mister Mister Johnson, what would you like to tell the nation today? It wasn't like that at all. And I think the yeah. media that came to all of these uh, hustings were very impressed. I mean, that was probably the thing that most impressed them that the party wanted a proper choice, and they got it. I mean, it's interesting what you say about Boris, you know, wanting to be liked. And I think that's quite well known of him. But then, of course, he is really well liked. And he's got this, you know, he's that's his incredible strength that, you know, across different voters um, and demographics. He is he is incredibly well liked because he has this natural, easygoing manner that just endears him to so many people. Did that really come across in those hustings? Yes, um, he's brilliant at using humour. Um, Jeremy Hunt actually was quite good at, at that as well. But I mean, there was one incident which uh, I will always remember in Carlisle. We'd, I think we had flown there in a helicopter, but, it, but we were all in different helicopters, which given the sort of green credentials that the Conservative Party likes to promote was possibly not the wisest thing. 
And um, but it was the only way of doing that and Manchester in the same day, I think. And it was on it was at Carlisle Racecourse. And Boris was I was interviewing Boris, and Jeremy Hunt had been on first, and a helicopter landed in the middle of the race course. So of course everybody looks out to the window to look at this helicopter. And Boris's rather shamefacedly said, um, and he had actually just been talking about climate change. <laughs> and he he sort of looked at the audience, they looked at him, and he said, I rather think that might be mine. This is a bit embarrassing, isn't it? And of course everybody laughed. And with that, Jeremy Hunt walked into the helicopter and it took off. And of course, the backdraft of the uh, helicopter um, blades, if that's what they're called, um, the, we had this backdrop at, at the event and the, the, the wind that came into the building because of this, I just, I saw Boris look round, then I looked round and the backdrop was falling on both of us. And I, <laughs> I, I put my hand out to stop it and somebody then came and sort of made it go upright again. <laughs> but it was it really was um, a very, very bizarre moment. I'm sure it's captured on film somewhere and will appear in one of these Channel 5 top 100 most embarrassing political moments. But it, it, <laughs> Very the thick yeah, of it. Well, it was, and it was, it was very funny. And then, of course, um, Boris's helicopter then did land. So it was, it was very funny anyway. Talking about helicopters reminds me, I haven't asked you about, about an object. Is there an object that... Um, you would say has impacted your thinking? I don't know it impacted my thinking. It impacted my life. Um, um, a green Audi Cabriolet, which oh. I bought in the summer of 1995. Um, I had ordered a new one to... Uh, I was working in lobbying then, so obviously very rich. <laughs> and um, I'd ordered a new one to go on a motoring holiday with an American friend of mine through Europe. And anyway, Audi let me down. So I decided I still wanted to get one. So I, I trolled around all of the Audi garages in London and I <clears throat> ended up in the one at Dover Court in St. John's Wood. And there was this magnificent turquoise Audi Cabriolet with white leather. And it was, um, it had only done 4,000 miles. So I said to the salesman, I said, well, what's the story behind that? Why would anyone get rid of a car at 4,000 miles? And he laughed and he said, oh, it was Princess Diana's. I said, I'll, ha- I'll have it. <laughs> yeah. And it was the most beautiful car. And so we went on this motoring holiday. And then um, I sold it about a year and a half later. But now how can I put this diplomatically? Um, if I had sold it maybe a year and a half after that, I could have made a lot more money because, of course, I sold it before she was killed. And... I sold it through Sotheby's and um, I'm told that the person that bought it then, then sold it to someone, I think it was in either Malaysia or Singapore for a million pounds. Blimey. I got, I got 23,000 for it. Now that, <laughs> I, I used that money to start Politico's. If I hadn't started Politico's, I wouldn't have got on the media as a political pundit. It was one of those... Um, fork moments in your life where you could have gone one way or another and if I hadn't had that money to start it um, we wouldn't be talking today probably Um, you just never know how your life is going to change but that that was one of those life-changing moments I think. Mm. 
just to end with some quick fire questions, Ian. Who are the who are the favourite people that you've interviewed? Well, I've got one coming up. Um, <laughs> this is going to ruin any street credibility I have, and I don't have an awful lot. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Cliff Richard in a few weeks' time, who is uh-huh. one, I, I love Cliff Richard. I've got 100, <laughs> 150 albums by him or something like that. Every, wow. Everything he's ever done, about 1,500 songs on my uh, phone. Sounds like love might be like under, <laughs> understatement. <laughs> my favourite song of all time is Miss Unites by Cliff Richard. Um, so and okay. so I hope, I mean, I have, I have interviewed quite a lot of heroes of mine over the years. One of them, I don't know if you've heard of him, the horror writer James Herbert. Um, he wrote no. bestsellers called The Rats and Lair. And um, I interviewed him oh, eight or nine years ago now, but he was not the young, thrusting writer that I thought he still was. Uh, he was very doddery, and it was one of those interviews where I couldn't wait for it to end. Um, I, he died shortly afterwards, actually. So sometimes it's not a good idea to interview your heroes, but I have... Joan Collins and Joan Rivers, I would say, are two of the people that I've interviewed that will remain with me for a long time. Uh, Joan Collins, I'd always loved her humour. I've been to see her uh, at a theatre in London, and she'd written a terrible book, actually. So she came in. And the thing with, with Joan Rivers is you have to um, you have to accept that you are there to just feed her the lines so she can be funny. And it was the most hilarious interview uh, Joan Collins, I was completely intimidated by, um, and I've interviewed her twice. But they were both fantastic interviews. She knew she had a role to play, and boy, did she play it well. Um, uh, you notice I'm not talking about any p- politicians at the moment. Yeah. Um, Fern yeah. Britton is somebody that I really like and respect. She's a very underrated political interviewer, actually, and she's she's now a novelist. So I've interviewed her a couple of times and she's very, very flirtatious. And I do like a good flirt in an interview with the right person. Um, Katie Price. Now you would think that Katie Price and I would have nothing in common that, uh, that she wouldn't really be able to string two words together. She's one of the most intelligent people I've ever interviewed. Interviewed her for an hour and loved every single minute of it. Uh, Jennifer Saunders, another one that I thought might be a bit of a tricky customer. Um, in fact, I remember the uh, about a year before I interviewed her, I was in my favourite restaurant, the Delaunay in Aldwych, and she was there with her husband, Aid Edmondson. And I, I sort of nudged the person I was with, and I said, look, it's Jennifer Saunders over there, because it is a restaurant where quite a lot of famous people go. And um, I walked past her table on the way out, and I heard her say to her husband, that's the bloke from Sky News. And it was one of the proudest moments of my life to be recognised by Jennifer Saunders. (laughs) But in in terms of politicians, um, the the interview that I think probably that if I'm ever remembered for anything, it will be with Theresa May the the week after her disastrous conference speech. Um, I've been trying to get Robbie Gibb to let her do a phone-in for a long time. And they, so we we'd arranged it for I think the Tuesday after the conference speech. You know, what the one where the, the the guy handed her a P forty five. She had a cough, and everything went wrong. And um, I expected them to cancel it, but credit to them, they didn't. And I mean, Theresa, as we all know, is not gifted with a huge amount of small talk, and um, there wasn't much of that before it started. And 
she was actually really good with a couple of the callers. And then we had an Italian lady phone in about citizens' rights. And she didn't really address the issue at all. So I followed up. And then I said to her, if there were a second referendum tomorrow, Prime Minister, would you vote leave or remain? And the look of terror in her eyes was something to behold. And she started doing that gurning thing that she does when she's in a tricky position and started saying, well, of course, it's a hypothetical question. Um, We're not going to have a second referendum. Brexit means Brexit, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, 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 I think it's quite important that you lead a government that is taking us out of the EU. I think it's quite important that people know, do you believe in Brexit or not? And therefore, it should be easy for you to say, yes, I would vote to leave in another referendum. And then she she blustered again. And she said, well, it's not a question that I can answer. And I said, well, Jeremy Hunt answered it to me last week. So if he did, why can't you? And it was just a car crash for her. I actually felt, I mean, just as a human being, I felt really sorry for her. And she handled all the rest of the questions very well. But, uh, I mean, Robbie and his team were furious because they said, well, it was supposed to just be be questions from listeners, not, not you interviewing her. I said, I asked a perfectly reasonable question. She chose not to answer it. Now, in the end, he admitted that I'd every right to answer the, ask the question. But I knew I would never interview her again. And sure enough, I didn't. But that, that, that interview was then shown on every news programme. Andrew Neil called it the Ian Dale question. And of course, every cabinet minister was then asked it afterwards. So that was quite a, quite a moment, actually. Um, it really was. And, th- and then, of course, the, the Boris thing in Birmingham, that, that possibly even surpassed it. I, I don't know. But I don't. I never go into an. I never go into an interview planning to sort of um, decapitate somebody. I think some interviewers do. Um, often, I find that if I'm doing a say half hour interview, the news line comes at minute twenty seven or twenty eight. The producers are panicking because I haven't got anything out of somebody. Um, but it generally does happen. But I, I don't like this idea of um, j- just asking gotcha questions we've seen so much of that during coronavirus at the press conferences and i think people people got sick and tired of it and it was actually the the local journalists the regional journalists that answered the really good questions because they were trying to elicit information and explanation from the various cabinet ministers whereas the big names and we all know who we're talking about um it was just um aren't you ashamed of that prime minister uh, on the 13th of March, you said this. You're saying something different now. Aren't you going to resign? I mean, I exaggerate to make a point. Yeah. But I, I just think questions like that are pointless. Well, it is also, I mean, all the pressure to have a news line, I mean, I think also does prevent sometimes the more interesting, in-depth conversations that I think lots of people are craving for yeah. at the moment. No, absolutely right. So, um I'm just grateful that I have the opportunity to do these long form interviews because I think if I was if I was working for the BBC and let's face it that's never going to happen um, I I would have the questions given to me by producers on a on a list and I I don't generally prepare for interviews in that way Uh, I might have five bullet points of areas that I want to ask about because I might forget one of them but I never have a list of actual questions because it, it just makes it a really stultifying experience now. Andrew Marr war games every single interview he does on his show. Well, that works for him, and good luck to him. 
I can't work like that. It has to be, I have to be spontaneous. Otherwise, it just becomes very boring. If you had the opportunity to sort of say, put your um, counsellor hat on, so to speak, and you could bring three people together who sort of historically would, you know, sort of run away from each other or, you know, would probably dread to be in the same room. Who would you want to bring together to see if you could, you know, improve something or? Oh, God, what a question. Uh, the, the, the one person that I would love to have interviewed and would love to speak to and really get inside his brain was Richard Nixon. Um, so he would be one of them. Uh, I've read all of his books, and if you've never read any Nixon books, do yourself a favour and buy all of them. Um, Six Crises, Leaders, In the Arena, and his memoirs. Um, They are absolutely brilliant, brilliant books. Um, So he would be one. Who would I bring together with Richard Nixon? Um, Possibly, I think he and Jeremy Corbyn might have quite a good uh conversation i i used to interview jeremy corbyn all the time he was our at lbc in the early years he was our default labor mp if we couldn't get anyone else we'd ring up jeremy corbyn and he would cycle over and come into the studio and i was going really well with him but i never interviewed him after he became leader because i think seamus milne regarded me as a quasi-fascist and therefore wouldn't let him anywhere near me um which which was which was a shame but there we are so i would have those two and then possibly queen victoria uh, because i think that she uh, i don't know if you've seen the itv series which is shall we say uh, historically elastic in in its portrayal of her i think um but i do i find her an absolutely fascinating character and she was really the last monarch to have any real influence on a, a, an elected government um and i think she presided over a country at a really interesting time and i think those three people um might not have a lot to say to each other at the beginning because they would have absolutely nothing in common but i suspect after a few drinks by the end of the evening they would have loosened up a bit that's brilliant ian thank you so much really enjoyed it thank you i hope you enjoyed that episode If you did, please share the word, share the link with your friends and family and leave a review. If you didn't like it, you know the drill, please don't tell anyone. And if there is someone you think I really ought to bring onto the show, you really want to hear from, just let me know. You can get in touch via Twitter, I'm at LauraRound or email podcast at bigtent.org.uk. And Ian Book is still available to order online. And the B Superhighway petition is still waiting for your signature. And finally, the offer is still going. Big Tent have introduced a special offer for podcast listeners. So you can join the Big Tent as a friend to access many exclusive benefits, such as intimate events with leaders from politics, business, tech, arts. Just use the code podcast at the checkout to receive three whole months free as a pay monthly member which is extraordinarily good value. Just go to bigtent.org.uk for full details. Thanks for listening and till the next one. Bye.